Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, Professor Emeritus Calliope DeGamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Episode 3A, now making all local stops. Shush me, the camera. Shush, both of you. I'm trying to think. My darling. What did I just say? So, James, why are you a vampire? It didn't um. work. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You said something about the multiverse being doomed, but that must mean... Yeah, spelling bounds. It's something about how the omniverse is awakening. There's an omniverse. Excuse me, I gotta go. Uh, King, uh, what on earth are you babbling about? An omniplex? I've got a hail a pumpkin coach. Ah! Ow! Ah, keep your hands off me. What's... The world is a question. This room is an answer. And the answer is no! Wait, what? Since when can he teleport? It's his own fault, poor man. Ever since the Oversheen crisis, every employee of the Metatechnic, past and present, now holds the title of Interim Dean, with all the perks, including teleportation. teleportation. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, what did he mean, the room is an answer? What was the pumpkin coach he was talking about? None of this makes any sense. Oh, for These were just the lyrics to co-op the cast recording. You mean you can understand him? You are coming with me. Hey, hey, let go of me, you unhinged... Vivisection, vociferous, voluminous! Jesus Christ, where are we now? Wherever Overstreet went... So, the forest from Netflix Dark. Great. Now that you mention it, this place does feel a little... Yeah, a little... A little? Ah! (laughs) It's okay! It's only me, Little Red, by Val Rigadone. It's it's a story. But how could it be? Uh, Of course. (laughs) She gets it! Gets what? Hey! Hey, come back here! James, don't you see? We're in the storyverse now. Come on! Don't just stand there. Follow the story. 
Little Red by Val Rigadone, read by Tony Perry. Are you a wolf or a girl? When she heard that, Little Red knew that she might never go home again. She might never see Mama, aging and ailing in their small two-bedroom condo at the edge of the forest. Poor angry Mama, who ground her teeth all night, angry from repressed road rage and letting bearded men cut her off without even honking her horn. Mama's mouth was more gum than bone, something she inherited from her own mother, whose mouth was a soft red hole, raw and steaming from a constant outpouring of smoke. Grandmother had ground her teeth so much, they sparked and crumbled and kindled a fire in her stomach that had yet to go out. All she could do with that growling forge in her stomach was lay about in bed, heavy and tired, waiting for Little Red to deliver food. The only food dear Grandma could tolerate inside her boiling, volcanic stomach was cubed tofu bacon. Little Red's stomach growled too sometimes, though, for different reasons. Every two weeks... Mama sent Little Red through the forest to Grandma's house. She was to keep small and stay out of everyone's way. If there was conflict, she was to apologize and politely excuse herself until it was defeated. And she was absolutely to make it home before nightfall. Already, Little Red had begun to accept her family birthright. She was called Little Red because she let unsaid words and admonishments crawl about under skin and make her turn bright red with anger. One day her trembling would stop, and her teeth would crumble, and the tears would dry, and she would stop craving meat, and her face would stay a bland, dark mask, and she would truly be her mother's daughter. Sometimes she trembled at the thought, and her steaming tears bubbled into her eyes and boiled away. Until then, she had to answer. I'm sorry, Little Red said. Please excuse me. Are you a girl or a wolf? asked the small creature. It sat in the middle of the forest path, huddled over a split rib cage, its smooth face sodden with blood. It was smacking its teeth with relish. Mama would insist that that smell was terrible. Little Red kept her face to the ground and stepped over the half-eaten corpse. The creature watched her. There are only three types that walk through this forest, and you're not a woodsman, because I saw him just over the hill, it said, following Little Red. Please excuse me, Little Red said again, her pace quickening. I'm sorry. Since there are two of us, the creature said, it stands to reason that one must be a girl, and one must be a wolf. A cloud veiled the sun. The forest grew dark. And if I'm a girl... Little Red ran quickly down the path and away from that smelly thing. By the time she got to Grandma's house, her face was bull's blood beat fire red. But whether from exertion or rage, she couldn't tell. She was sweating under her thick sweater and wool skirt. The ceiling of the little cottage was smothered in black smoke, as usual. Soot hung in the air as if caught on invisible spiderwebs. The one bed, lying in the middle of the room was heavy with ash. Grandmother lay upon it, burnt thin, gnarled, and black as coal, her orange glowing mouth and white eyes the only color. She was wasting away from the inside. Once, Little Red's mama had visited every few months. Now, Little Red had to come by every two weeks. 
Good afternoon, Grandma. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Mama's good. We're good. Oh, that's good. I'm glad. (laughs) Little Red stuck her fingers in the basket and pulled out chunks of tofu bacon and dropped them down Grandmother's gullet. There was a rumble of metal as the food was processed and heat belched forth from her mouth. Little Red wondered if Grandma was ever truly satisfied, if the tofu really did start to taste good after a while, if she was happy to reach such an old age. Sometimes Little Red didn't know if she was strong enough to even make it to the next day. She sat on the straw and wood chair by the bedside, soot tickled her cheeks and stained her dress's hem, but she didn't brush them away because that would have been rude to Grandmother. She was to stay 45 minutes. That was a polite visiting time constraint. Any less than you chanced troubling your host, any more and you risked overstaying your welcome. After Grandma was fed, Little Red pulled out the razor. She bared her leg and began shaving. Grandma was lucky. Her hair follicles had burnt away long ago. She no longer had to shave. Her skin stayed smooth and goose-pimpled like hank of fresh... Little Red stared at the far ash-stained wall, the window clogged and filthy. Something had moved across the other side of the glass. White light filtered through the grime, but nothing else did. Grandmother rumbled on the bed. Little Red averted her eyes to the dark, underused nursery. Staring was rude. The nursery was nearly empty by then, save for the bassinet and a broken shelf. Little Red had secretly taken all the toys home, one by one, under her skirt. But she had been too scared to play with them, though. Instead, she buried them in a forgotten spot in the woods. Forty-five minutes had passed. It didn't matter if Little Red had one arm left unshaved. She had to go to market and be overcharged on cartons of tofurkey and cans of soda. Then she would be overlooked by the teller at the bank, and be skipped in line at a cafe where she would spend her last few dollars on a lukewarm coffee white with milk when she asked for it black. She had to get home before the sun was gone. At the end of the evening, she would go home and drop pieces of raw tofurkey into Mama's gullet, shave Mama's face, and then go to bed. Grandmother sputtered and went silent. Goodbye, Grandma. No, thank you. You're such a dear... It was a pleasure. No, no, I couldn't take any cookies home. Yes, of course, I'll visit again. Yes, I have everything. It's really no trouble. I love seeing you. Outside, the sun was waning through the tall fir trees. Light pierced through the needles and made a shadow theater of her on the side of Grandmother's house. She decided to go the long way to avoid the nasty creature that she had met earlier. It would take much longer to get to market, But if she was late, Mama would. You're a wolf. Little Red spun around, her sneakers slipping in the damp leaves. The creature was crouched behind her on stumpy, muddy legs. What are you doing here? The creature asked, dirt-clogged and weak and ugly. The only hair it had was on its head in knotted, thin pigtails. Are you going to eat me? Little Red blinked and looked anywhere but at the crass thing. Excuse me. She began walking evenly, as if she hadn't heard anything. It was all right to ignore dirty things. They wouldn't know the difference anyway. If she wanted to go home and see Mama again and continue living her life, she would have to ignore it. 
And she did want to go home. She did. She did. Home, mama, grandma, tofu, razor, sweaters, town. She repeated it until the words were meaningless and therefore objectively true. What were you doing in that house? Did you eat the people who lived inside it? There used to be a mother and a father and a baby who lived there. Now the windows are fogged from the inside and I haven't seen them for years. You ate them? Little Red snapped her mouth shut so hard the peaks of her teeth shattered. Home? Grandma? Nursery toys? The creature followed her. What long ears you have. Girls don't have ears like that. Look at mine. Little Red pushed her hat tighter on her head and turned left around a huge pine that had been struck by lightning earlier in the year. What big eyes you have. Are they to see in the dark with? Do you hunt at night? What a stupid question. It wasn't night. Not yet. The creature tugged at the sleeve of Little Red's sweater, bearing a wrist prickling with dark hair. Mama? Tofu? Meat. Little Red spun around to face the creature. The creature jerked back. Its wide eyes scanned Little Red's face and lingered over her bared teeth. Uh-oh. Look how red your face is. It took a step back. Another. Then, stupidly, it began to run. Little Red ran after it, her legs flying over logs and pits. The basket splintered against the ground in a mess of leftover tofu, shaving cream, and gel. The creature's feet drummed rapidly against the dirt. What sharp teeth you have! All the better to rip little girls into pieces! Oh, help, help! The creature began to stumble across the soggy peat of the ground, its horrible mouth wailing, its face wrinkled into a grimace. Help, wolf! Help me! Help me! Little Red could not bring herself to scream. Her voice was stuck somewhere deep in her chest, rattling around her ribcage like pine cones. But when it finally rumbled out of her throat, it sounded worse than Grandma's ever did. Help, help! Oh, help! And suddenly, Little Red was upon it. They stumbled down the slick, leaf-matted side of a hill, leg tangled with haunch, tangled with hair, meat tangled with long teeth. Warmth dripped down Little Red's chest into the thick black wool sweater that Mama made her promise to wear, even in the dead of summer. The creature wailed, sounding almost like a howl, when Little Red sunk her hand into its thigh. The creature beat its soft fist into Little Red's head. Wolf! Help! What happens? Another, deeper voice shouted from the forest. Heavy footsteps pounded toward them. A wolf! A wolf! It's eating me! Little Red's insides went cold. A heavy, meaty hand grabbed her by the throat, pulled and threw her. Her spine cracked against a tree stump. Her head spun. The top of it gave way to something sharp, and blood slid down her forehead. No! No! Stand back. She looked at the creature who was cowering in fear behind someone too tall to make out. There, nasty wolf, the voice boomed. You'll not harm another little girl under my watch. He grabbed his axe from his belt. No, 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 please, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it was an accident. Little Red cried. I, I won't do it again, I'm sorry. But he hefted his terrible axe into the air and brought it down on Little Red's neck with immense force. Her head rolled across the leaves, teeth cracked, but still sharp as ever, and her dark red blood soaked into the dirt. And the forest 
was peaceful forevermore. Val Rigadone is a poet, writer, and occultist from Brooklyn, New York. She is a 2019 Poets House Fellow and a member of Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers. She is also a JD candidate. One day, she hopes to own a house by the sea. Val is extremely honored to have her story featured on the Kaleidocast. Tony Perry is an actor and singer-songwriter. He narrated the film Lost and Found and the audio comic The Captain Punishment Adventure Hour. He has performed in English and Yiddish, and he's happy to talk about all things Doctor Who. This episode was made possible by our Patreon subscribers. A special thank you to Julia de Guzman. We hope you enjoy listening to the Kaleidocast as much as we enjoy making it for you. If you are, will you consider joining our Patreon? It's a way for you to financially support this podcast with whatever you feel comfortable giving. Right now, the Kaleidocast pays semi-pro rates for original fiction, but we have big dreams. We want to pay more for the authors, narrators, engineers, and artists who make this podcast possible. Won't you join us? Visit patreon.com slash kaleidocastnyc. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash k-a-l-e-i-d-o-c-a-s-t-n-y-c. From all your producers, Bradley, Cam, S-O-A, Joe, Marcus, Marcy, Sam, and Sandra, thank you for supporting the Kaleidocast. There's a story verse? Wait, what is a story verse? We're losing her. Keep following Little Red. It's like you you don't even listen to me. Look, you are an acquisitor, right? You walk around your universe collecting stories. Yeah, that's the job. In Soviet Russia, story collect you. We're in a pocket universe where the stories walk and talk, and people are the ones who get dog-eared. Ah, there she is, Little Red, Little Red, and she's found Overstreet. They're up ahead. Overstreet, yoo-hoo, wait for us. Train is coming round the bend. Train arrives. coach is long. Overstreet, don't you know the story verse is dangerous? I was so worried about you. That sounds unpleasant. I, I suppose it was. <laughs> yes. Happy to hear you noticed. <laughs> um, um, Overstreet, I'm so excited. What is this? Rush hour? Ow. Watch the elbows, people. <laughs> Wait. Was I just censored? This part of the story verse is rated PG. Ah! Who are you? Summer Skin. And what's your story? I'm a monster. Yeah, you don't seem like a monster. That's the idea. New orders, Mr. Kingman. Orders? I don't take orders from anthropomorphic. Have a June bug. You're not yourself when you're hungry. Mm-hmm. Mm. Then again, 
Are we ever? Al dente? Notes of umami? Oh, I could I could get used to this. Follow them. Stay with them. What? That's it? What else am I gonna do? Go on a side quest? Just remember, we're watching all of us. <laughs> Summer Skin by Zin E. Rocklin first appeared in the 2017 anthology Sycorax's Daughters from Cedar Grove Publishing, read by Larice White. I saw her on the D train and she looked like an auntie, so I sat down next to her and started asking her questions, but she moved away. You see, I've got this thing with my skin and... It's been so long since I've been around family. I miss my family. We had all these remedies, all these bush baths and teas and draws that would cure you or make you shit or both. And either way, I never felt so loved in my life. But this thing with my skin, it molts. But before that, it bubbles. In flames, kind of. It doesn't itch, but it's rough. Like the surface of a dried-out clementine, it becomes extra sensitive, as if my nerves are sliced open and breathing, cresting the surface of my dermis and flirting with the air. It hurts. It wasn't always so bad, but it seems like I've always had it. Started as a tiny, bumpy patch on the back of my knees when I was four. I'd fallen in the front yard and my mom swooped down and carried me into the house while I screamed myself, breathless. Nothing was wrong with me. No broken bones, no deep cuts. Just a little scrape on the hand that prevented my forehead from smacking into the pavement. And that little patch... My mom noticed when she bathed me that night in the normal concoctions that I'd hissed the moment I touched the hot water. The temperature didn't bother me. It never bothered me. But my skin, it stung. It felt like it was being peeled away from me, from my body. And I hissed, then screamed, and my mom smacked my mouth, shutting me up so she could turn me over. She cut it off that patch of skin right there in the bath. She took the small paring knife to it and slipped the layer right off so quick her wrist that I barely felt it. The odd thing, there was no blood. There never is. There's this viscous clear liquid instead. Plasma it's called, I think. I know I'm not supposed to, but I pick at it. I can't help it. When I'm not staring, I'm picking. It's fascinating and repulsive, and it's me. She gets up, but we're between stops, so there's nowhere to go. The train is packed, and the route all fucked up because there's forever construction, so there's a lot of white people asking questions to the kindest, yet brownest people they can make eye contact with. People tell me I have a nice smile, but it doesn't outshine my skin. Still, it would be nice to be asked, not just about the trains, about anything, really. It would be nice to be noticed. 
She's stuck in the midst of a Swedish family, all blonde and milky, and the father looks like he wants to ask her where the fuck we're going, but she's got that look on her face, the look that says, leave me the fuck alone. I stared at her until she warms her way through the bodies towards the middle of the car. I stand just to keep an eye on her, and a young pregnant woman slides into the empty seat next to the one that her man had taken when my auntie had gotten up. Don't think me presumptuous. I know she's pregnant. I can smell it. It's strong, like a pretty perfume amped by sweat. Her and her man, they smell alike, but he's not hers. Not really. Anyway, my auntie, she's made it to the doors on the other side. So when we pull into West Forth, she doesn't have time to look up and see me step off with her. She's following most of the rerouted crowd for the F train and I'm following her. I'm kind of short and with the exception of my skin, I blend into the other black and brown faces, though we seem fewer and fewer these days at stops like this. No one notices my skin while rushing to another train or place or meeting. There's never enough time. So I always find a little peace in the frantic rush. Stopping makes me nervous. It's hot, but the F is running on a higher line, so we get some breeze. Still too hot for my jacket, though. The sweat stings like hell. I hide by the Swedish family until the little girl notices and starts staring and the mother the smooth cream that is her face tinges with a delightful smack of strawberry jam and she says something in her native tongue because she's so nervous she forgets the perfect English with which she'd ask questions and it sounds somewhat apologetic so I smile at her and nod accepting her daughter's rudeness it's not the smile I get compliments on it's the kind that's tight kind of mean expected of a black girl with an attitude problem I look down and see that I've begun oozing before I can start to blot the train arrives me and auntie step on through separate doors summer was the catalyst Once the humidity set in, there was no controlling it. My skin would explode, hives turning into sores on top of blisters until every piece of clothing hurt. Before the buds of my breasts came in, my mother used to let me run around the house naked. Those were the summers mom would dress me in a smock on weekends and I'd lay down in the back seat of daddy's car under a blanket until we pulled up in front of my auntie's house in Canarsie, usually at night, always at night. I had seven aunties. They all lived together, no uncles. Mom's family didn't have any men until my dad. I supposedly had a brother, a twin but he died before we were born. I had cousins, but I haven't seen them since I started to bleed. I overheard my aunties and mom talking about sending them home. The morning I woke up with the pain in my belly and the sheet stuck to my bum when I was 14. They'd given me a special bath that day, a blue one, one that didn't sting, 
They told me it was nothing to be ashamed of, that I was a woman now, and there'd be changes. I hardly felt any of them, these changes, except my belly hurt a lot of the time and I was hungry, constantly hungry. But my aunties kept me well fed. With my cousins gone, I could eat their plates plus some. So my mom left me there that summer. I never saw my mom or my dad again. There's more room on the fake F train, so hiding is a bit difficult, but my auntie doesn't notice me anyway. I can't lie. It hurts a little, but it won't matter soon enough. The F follows the E until we get to J Street Metrotech. There's a mass exodus as the connections and corrections are mumbled through the PA, but it doesn't include my auntie, so I drift further down the car and sit next to the homeless man everyone is avoiding. He stinks, but I don't mind. I have this thing where I can filter smells if I want to. It's useful when traversing the tunnels. My auntie pulls out a book and my heart leaps with joy. I love books, always have. I love reading. My dad taught me when I was really young. I was the smartest kid in pre-K, so they say. I skipped a few grades, but then my condition spread and kids are mean, and I started having this temper problem. The F is skipping a lot of stops, but Auntie doesn't seem to mind. She's casually paying attention as we roll past the elevated stations, and I try to keep an eye on her and where we are. I know these boroughs fairly well, well enough to get back to where I need to be, but I don't like feeling unmoored either. As we pull away from Neptune Avenue, she puts her book away. Some crime novel, dog-eared and shitty, and stares out the plexiglass windows. She has beautiful, clear skin. Winter is the kindest to me. At that point, my skin is no longer oozing or blistering. Instead, it becomes hardened, dry, flaky, Feels like a callus in some spots, horny bed sores in others, but the relief is palpable. It's then I try to take oat baths, like my aunts taught me. It helps the new skin underneath healed, so when my summer skin slips, it's just a matter of peeling it away. Sometimes I get too eager and make new scars, but oh yeah, there are scars. They're not so bad. It's better than the condition. Anyway, spring and fall are my transitions from relief to pain, pain to relief. But I've learned to live with it. There's no cure, so there's no point to yearn for one. But there is a way to find respite, if only for a season. We get off at West 8th Street and this butterfly lets loose in my belly because we're close to the boardwalk and the aquarium and I haven't been there in years. My dad used to take me. Never mind. I keep lamenting the past when my present is gaining distance. So, auntie, she's not going to the aquarium or the boardwalk. She lives here in the Luna Park projects. She's in the building right on West 8th, closest to that concrete park. There's a lot of people outside, but none pay much attention to either one of us. 
The security door is broken, so walking in a moment or two behind her is no big deal. The elevators are working, and she steps on, but no one else does, so I put on my jacket and lift the light hood and step on and stick myself in the far corner away from her. She doesn't seem to notice me or, at the very least, recognize me. I'm short and plump, and I look like everyone else when my jacket is on, so she has no reason to. She gets off on the 15th floor, and I wait a few seconds before following her out. Her apartment is closer than I think, and she's almost got the door closed before I realize which one it is. I take a breath, raise a fist, knock. I hear her suck her teeth. Steps is what we call it. I hear her steps as she approaches the door, but then she opens it, and I try on one of those smiles for size, the good smile, the smile that people like so much, but it doesn't relax her. It does the opposite. Her eyebrows knit hard, and she's looking me up and down like she's trying to figure me out, and she sees my hands. My stupid fucking hands give me away because they're bubbling up really bad and they're oozing too, so there's no hiding it in my auntie. She sucks in a breath, a tiny little panicked breath, and moves to close the door, but I stop it with my foot and everything goes black. My aunties taught me everything I know. I thought they knew everything, but they couldn't control me. Turns out, I had plenty to be ashamed of. Once I started to bleed, and my aunties, they tried. When the past failed them, they tried to learn me, but it was too late. Turns out, they knew nothing at all. I came to in her small living room on a cracked leather couch set. Aunties laying on the love seat while I'm in the armchair. She's got a shiner that's swelling before my eyes, and her beautiful square jawline is lumpy. Blood fights melanin as both discolor the surface. Her skin is still beautiful. Not a mark on it. No scarring. No acne. She's got a high forehead like my first auntie, the oldest, but she favors the youngest the most. The last auntie, the one after my mom. Same burnt umber skin, same beady black eyes, same pillowy lips. Even the slight arch in her thin, short eyebrows mocks the memory of my prettiest auntie. The nose is different, though. Hers is thinner, straighter, almost violent in its slope. I don't like her nose. But I like everything else about her face and her skin, so I sit up and smile at her until her eyelids flutter open and those beady eyes are staring back at me. I smile harder, show all my teeth. Of all the other things my body has failed me with, my teeth remain pretty and white and big. Not sure why. Genetics, I suppose. Auntie sits up and by the look on her face, perhaps a little too fast. She touches her eye, then her jaw, then whimpers, tears brimming those bug eyes. You, you okay? I ask. My voice is rough, croaky. Before today, on the train, it'd been a long time since I'd spoken. No need to when you're ignored. I clear my throat. Are you okay, auntie? Old habits kick in. 
Remembering the licks received for addressing elders as if they were friends, the question is intrusive enough to catch a hard side eye, but this is a new auntie. She wouldn't do that. She blinks at me, five tears running down the slopes of her face, then says, yes, I'm fine. Good. You have any squash? Squash is my favorite. My dad made it best, but I've learned to live with substitutes. She frowns for a moment. Yes, I do. I knew it. I knew she was an auntie. There's no accent, but I know my aunties anywhere. May I have a glass, please? I ask patiently, though my excitement for the sweet, tangy drink is making my heart pound. Auntie stares at me for a long time, then nods slowly. She stands with some trouble, then shuffles her way towards the tiny kitchenette. I watch her giddily, practically climbing over the top of the chair to keep an eye on her movements. She pauses by the sink and pats her pockets, then looks around patiently. There's a cell phone charger, but it's empty. Right next to it, she finds what she's looking for, smashed to pieces. Sorry about your phone, I say. I can get you a new one. This is a lie, and we both know it. But she smiles softly anyway and turns to the fridge. She takes out an old school, probably early 70s, plastic pitcher and dumps the remains of the squash in a plastic dollar store cup, bright red. Red is one of my favorite colors. She looks around the kitchenette again tugging drawers open and sighs with disappointment. I know those sighs all too well. Her shoulders fall a bit and she trudges back into the living room and hands me the squash, of which I greedily gulped down. Still not as good as dad's, but better than any of my auntie's attempts. She needs more Angostura. She sits back down on the love seat and her body begins to shake. Are you going to kill me? She asks. I frown, tears prickling my eyes. No, auntie, no, I cry out. I just, I need a bath. One of those baths. I can never get that ratio right, you know? The Florida water versus the rose. It doesn't make sense. and I can never get it right in my skin. I tug the sleeves up with care but it still catches on the plasma and sticks until I have to tug harder. It's really bad this summer, and I need help. Her apartment has grown warm, so I roll the sleeves back down and take off the jacket. The acidity of my sweat has made things worse. Some areas of my arms and chest crack so bad I can see fat. The skirt and tank top I'm wearing is sealed to my skin, and this stupid fake leather chair isn't making things any better, but this is the only place to sit. She doesn't even have a table set with dinner chairs. I shift in the armchair, and a small flap of flesh from the back of my knee comes away. It doesn't hurt compared to the area that was stuck in the jacket, so I don't howl, but I do pick the piece off the chair and study it. Oh, Father God, Auntie says in a breath. See, I say, showing her the piece. I need a bath. Oh, okay, she sputters. 
Do you have the stuff? All the different waters? I ask. I'm being rude, but I'm desperate. Auntie has to understand. She nods slowly. Do you have air conditioning? She nods again. Can you put it on? It's hot in here. And I'll have to nap afterwards. You know that, right? So put on the air in the bedroom if you have it. I do, she says. Good, I say. She stands and runs her hands on her thin thighs. She's small, my new auntie. Not at all like my other ones. They were all big women with broad shoulders and huge guts and far-reaching breasts. I loved cuddling with them. This auntie is bony, and I realize she looks a lot younger than I'd originally thought. Almost too young to be an auntie. Where where did you put my knives? She asks, her voice shaking. I shrug. I don't know what I do when I'm in the black. I say, and it's the truth, and we both know it. So she nods and walks towards the large window and turns on the air. It takes a minute, but the stale air turns cool, then cold, and I'm sighing in relief. She returns to the love seat, and I stand up so quickly she flinches, but I ignore her to stand directly in front of the unit. I don't know if it's real or a psychosomatic relief, but I swear I hear my skin crinkle and sigh. Once the pain subsides, I walk back over to the armchair, but I don't sit. Instead, I say, may I have more squash, please? I'm being greedy. I know, especially since it's before dinner, but I love squash. And it's been a couple of years since I've had some. I don't have any more limes. She whispers, her eyes widening with something like hope. I can get some, though. I grit my teeth. No store. No, just down the hall. Miss Toddy always has limes, she says desperately. No, no neighbors. I blow out a breath and try not to let the disappointment turn into tears. No squash, then. I sigh again. This really hurts. What's for dinner? I flinch, remembering the last time I'd asked something like that so casually. Whatever in the fuck I cook, that's what. I whimper, then shake my head. I can cook, I say, trying to pep up. It's been a while, but I never forget. I don't, I don't have anything thawing, she says, but I can order Chinese. Again, I'm fighting anger through my jaw. No. Stop trying to leave before giving me my bath. I need to eat before you do, though, so what do you have that I can cook? Finally, she's had enough. Her whole face sets hard and she shoots up from the couch. Go look in the fucking fridge, crazy-ass bitch. Almost immediately, she stops herself, sobers as if someone popped her on the mouth after a bad word flew from it. But I'm too sad to do anything but deflate and drag my feet towards the kitchenette. I open the fridge first, then freezer, then cabinets, and see that she's right. She doesn't have much, barely anything at all. Just some chicken quarters in the freezer that will take forever to defrost. I have to eat, and I have to do it soon. She's a terrible auntie. 
My skin ripples and my belly growls for the first time in a very long time. I try not to let it growl ever because when it does, it's almost like being in the black. I have no idea what will happen. But when I look at her, I don't feel sad or scared. I feel angry. I feel like she deserves whatever is coming to her for being so horrible to me. I've been nothing but nice and respectful, and she can't even feed me before my bath. My belly growls again, and I change. I come to naked in a bathtub full of cool water, my ruined clothes on the floor beside me, and a little bit of blood on the tiles. I shift, and various perfumes tickle my nose, meaning I attempted the concoction again. This one smells a little closer to home. Florida, Kananga, Rose, Aqua Divin, and Holy. No one would be able to tell, considering how murky and thick the water has become. But I can smell it, all of them. I smile, then sit up and pass my hands along my arms, watching in fascination as the old summer skin sloughs away, revealing new, soft, gorgeous mahogany flesh. It's perfect, my new skin. Perfect and beautiful and condition-free. My smile grows wider as I continue the shed. From my breasts to my feet, my legs to my belly, I am brand new. When I think I'm done, I stand in the water and let the few chunks plop back down. I step out and dry my feet on my old clothes, stiff with plasma, and reach for a decorative tile drying the rest of my skin. I do something rude to the embroidered flower in between my legs for a little mischief, then turn to drain the tub. I'll have one shitty cleanup to do, but it won't matter. The task won't be halted by cracking tight, swollen skin. I use the same towel to wipe down the droplets on the tiles, then hang it back. I search through her lotions and pick the least scented one, slathering it almost erotically slow over the smooth expanse of my skin. Once done, I look at myself in the mirror and for the first time in years, I like what I see. I need a plan. But for the next few days, I'll have to lay low here. My new skin will be sensitive and highly reactive to the outside. The sun is my enemy. Summer makes it worse. I want to enjoy the gift my auntie has given me. As long as the air is still kicking, I'll be fine. No food, but I'm satiated beyond normal means. I'll have to work on a story, though, like one of those mysteries i used to love reading because there's a knock at the door and a body in the hallway and i don't want to hurt my new skin zin e rocklin is a 2017 vona 2018 viable paradise and 2020 clarion west student her work can be found in the anthologies forever vacancy 2017 Bram Stoker-nominated Sycorax's Daughters, of which her story, Summer Skin, was longlisted for Best Horror 2017, Kaiju Rising 2, Reign of Monsters, Brigands, a Blackguards Anthology, Knox Paradolia, The Zine, Weird Luck Tales No. 7, 
and Tor.com. Her nonfiction essay, My Genre Makes a Monster of Me, is in Uncanny Magazine's Hugo Award-winning Disabled People Destroy Science Fiction and Fantasy 2018 issue. Her website, terryzin.com, is currently under construction. In the interim, follow her on Twitter at Intelligent Twat. Your narrator for this story is Larisse White. She is an actress, poet, writer, and student of the art of voiceover. This episode was made possible by our Patreon subscribers. A special thank you to Larissa De Lima. Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Calliope DeGamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our audio was engineered by Kyle Fink and Atticus Garten. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. Special thanks go out to Mike Allen, Zigzag Claiborne, CSE Cooney, Alpha Daily Majors, Wilson Fowley, Tatiana Gomberg, Julia D. Guzman, Carlos Hernandez, Gary Benjamin Holt Jr., Adeodat Ilbudo Roberson, Larissa De Lima, Marco Palmieri, and Diana Foe. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or comment on our website at kaleidocast.nyc, which is where you can find links to all our contributors.